Well, good morning, friends. Buenos dias, Iglesia. I am so glad to be with you today. My name is Ethan Magnus, one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us today, we are super glad that you are here today. Uh, by the time you see this, I will probably be back in town, and I hope to even be at church uh, using video for a couple reasons. One, it gives us some flexibility in our services, because that way I don't have to run back and forth uh, between the services. But mainly, it allows me to record the sermon in advance so I can really focus on being with my family during spring break. So hopefully the video will work, because I am super excited about this new series that we are kicking off today. It's called Promised. Uh, and we're looking at the Old Testament prophets and how the prophets proclaimed the truth and the promises of God and how we can learn from those today and how those promises prepared the way for the great redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Now, to pull this off uh, this week, we've got to do a little bit of preparation. We've got to kind of gather our thoughts a little bit and learn a couple things so that we can understand how prophecy works. Uh, that means that today's sermon will be a little more complicated uh, than most of my sermons are. But this work is really important because many of us are confused about what prophecy even is. I think a lot of us, our notions of what prophecy is, has been more influenced by fantasy literature or Greek mythology uh, than by the Bible. Maybe when you think of a prophet, you think of the, the oracle that in the play Julius Caesar predicted, beware the Ides of March. But of course, he didn't know what that meant until it was too late. Or, or maybe you think about Star Wars where Yoda says, the chosen one will be born who will bring balance to the force. And we have to watch the movies to find out what that means. Or maybe you think about Harry. Potter, you know, the one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will soon be born, blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's a really cool thing. And, and those kinds of prophecies, I, I suppose they're a good way to move the plot forward and they're a good way to create some foreshadowing and suspense, but they can leave us confused. They can leave us that thinking that prophecy is, by definition, a specific prediction about future events that is usually so cryptic that nobody knows what it means. And both those things are wrong, at least when applied to scripture. There's lots of biblical prophecy that is not a specific prediction of future events. And most biblical prophecy is not so cryptic that we can't understand it. Most of the time it's actually, if you spend a little work on it, you'll be able to figure it out. On the contrary, biblical prophets we're not decontextualized soothsayers saying random things about the future. No, they were caretakers of God's truth. Heralds of God's covenant and God's character. Consistently applied to the present situation of God's people. Always more interested in the present obedience of God's people than they were any vision of the future. Although, of course, they sometimes did that too. The biblical prophets were a lot less like the oracles of some fantasy movie and a lot more like, um, ooh, the great prophet Franco. If you've never heard of him, here's his story. This is the story of how Franco was discovered as a prophet. One day, Paulette was examining the upcoming building contracts her company had agreed to do. She just had an offer to build a new drive-in movie theater that would be very profitable, and she wanted to cancel some of the other jobs so that she could take this job. 
I want to cancel some of my other jobs so that I can build this highly profitable drive-thin movie theater. She decided to cancel on her contract to build the bathrooms at the mall. I think that I will cancel the contract to build the bathrooms at the mall. She hit the little intercom button and called in her assistant, Franco. Uh, yes ma'am, what can I do for you? Call the mall and tell them that we are not building their bathrooms. That is a bad idea. No, it is a good idea. That way we can build the movie theater and get rich. Oh, you who are foolish. Do you not know that the mall has waited for us to build those bathrooms, waiting in agony for us to come to them and build bathrooms? But if we refuse, they will gather up lawyers from other nations and bring them in to quickly destroy us with lawsuits. When the lawyers are done, people will say, surely the mall is a powerful mall, not to be trifled with. We have signed a contract with the mall to build those bathrooms, and the punishment is too much to bear if we break the contract. It can't be that bad. Cancel the contract. For three and even four weeks, they have waited for us to begin those bathrooms, but they will wait no more. The lawsuit will leave no one at this company in a job. Paulette would not listen to Franco, and she canceled the contract with the mall. As Franco predicted, the mall sued and the company went bankrupt. Paulette spread the story of Franco's prophecy, and the word went out far and near, and he was forever known as Franco the Prophet. Okay, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's not even prophecy. Franco doesn't even count as a prophet. All he did was read the contract, understand the contract, and apply the terms of the contract to his boss's present actions. But actually, many prophets and lots of prophecies worked just like that. You see, in the Old Testament, God's people had a contract, a covenant with God about how they would act and how God would respond to their actions. And the covenant included a long list of laws, keep the Sabbath, honor your parents, welcome the widow and the foreigner, worship faithfully, don't worship idols, all kinds of things like that. But periodically, God would interrupt these long lists to remind the people of the terms of the covenant. Here's an example from Deuteronomy chapter 11. So, if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you to today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. The terms of the covenant. A little later in the same chapter, Look, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today, and the curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God, and turn away from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. Again, they had a law, but the covenant also had terms. 
These get repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament law. Here's another example from Leviticus 26. It's a whole chapter long. Don't worry, I won't read the whole chapter, but you could look at it later if you wanted to. Verse 3, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, then I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live safely in the land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. That's what happens if they keep the covenant. Here's what happens if they break the covenant. But, I'm in verse 14 now, if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases, and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemy will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. The text goes on and it gets worse and worse and worse. Skip down to verse 27. If in spite of all this, you still do not listen to me but continue to be hostile to me, then in my anger I will be hostile toward you and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. Verse 31, I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste to your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste to the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations. I will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. This is what God will do if they reject God's covenant. Now, of course, this is God, so mercy gets the last word, verse 40. But if they will just confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they have paid for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my promise to Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord, their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. So this is the covenant, the law, and the terms of their agreement. So, if you were living in ancient Israel, while the people worshipped idols and were cruel to foreigners and cheated at business and oppressed people in the courts, and you knew God's promises, well, I was teaching this to a junior high class once, and one of them said this, apparently, you don't have to be a prophet to be a prophet. And I know exactly what he meant. If you've read Leviticus 11 and you show up and see people worshiping false gods, cheating at business, being cruel to foreigners, abusing widows, well, you know what God is about to do. In actually quite specific detail, God says what God is going to do in not Leviticus 11, Leviticus 26. But actually, 
That's exactly what prophets did. It was the prophets who had the courage to speak the truth about God's covenant, even while God's people were turning away from God's law and rejecting God's wisdom for their life. It was the prophets who had the courage to warn people that judgment was coming. When a prophet saw God's people doing, well, anything that rejected God's law, they could predict with remarkable clarity how God would respond because the public covenant was so clear to begin with. Here's a great example from Amos chapter 2, one of his first oracles as a prophet. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and they have not kept his decrees. They have been led astray by false gods to the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortress of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet look, I destroyed the Amorites before them. Though they were as tall as the cedars and strong as oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you 40 years in the wilderness. I gave you the land of the Amorites. I raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Your youth. Isn't this true, people of Israel? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Amos comes to the people with a list of public sins, ways that the nation of Israel has broken their covenant with God. And then he says, Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. Even the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day declares the Lord. The prophet, you see, could predict not the specific future, but the general future action of God because they knew the terms of the covenant where God had been pretty clear about how God would respond to God's people when we broke the covenant. The prophets were public heralds of a public covenant and their goal was to provoke people to repentance so they could be spared the penalties of God's covenant. And this is the first and foundational way that prophets worked. It's the most common kind of oracle we see, one that addresses the public sin of the people and then calls to mind the implications of the covenant. Not bringers of a specific future prophecy, but as heralds of the public implications of having broken God's public covenant. Now, not all prophets worked this way, of course. Uh, there were some prophets uh, who worked like Franco, but some prophets were rooted in a different source of wisdom. To see how that worked, check out the story of the prophet Susan. This is the story of how Susan was discovered as a prophet. 
One day, Billy was experimenting with his new pocket knife, which he had received as a gift on his 13th birthday. I love my new pocket knife, which I have received as a gift on my 13th birthday. Billy thought that it would be fun to carve his name in a tree outside. It'll be fun to carve my name in a tree. So, Billy did. Wee, this is fun. Later, Billy decided that it would be fun to carve his name in the dining room table. It will be fun to carve my name in a dining room table. As Billy began to carve, his older sister, Susan, came in and warned him. Woe to you, Billy, and to your bottom, if you carve into the dining room table. For our mother is swift to punish those who damage the furniture she inherited from Grandma. Billy continued carving and mocked his sister. You can't predict the future. You don't know what Mom will do. The wrath of our mother may be slow in coming because she stopped at the market on the way home. But you can be sure the wrath will come and in that day there will be weeping such has not been heard since the day I wrote my name in lipstick on her silk dress. Mom is not here, but I am speaking in her place. For this crime, there will be great suffering. Soon after Susan said this, her mother got home, and just as Susan predicted, Billy was punished with woe upon his bottom. From that day on, Susan was known as Susan, the prophet of Mom. And all who knew her sought her advice and asked her for a vision of the future. All right. I know uh, some of you are still unconvinced. Uh, some of you, like Billy, are saying she can't predict the future. She just paid attention to mom's rules and trusted in the reliability of her mother's character and remembered what happened when she wrote you know, on the silk dress with her mom's lipstick. Surely you think that's not what prophets did. But actually, prophets did that a lot. They would see the sin and rebellion of God's people. And they would recognize how God had responded in the past when other peoples and other nations had sinned in similar ways. And this knowledge of God's character and knowledge of the people's sin, their breaking of the covenant, well, it allowed them to speak clearly into the lives of others. Uh, here's a great example from the prophet Jeremiah. We're actually going to look at this, this oracle in particular. We'll look at later in the series. Hear the word of the Lord, all you peoples of Judah who come into these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and you deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? So again, will you break all these laws that were in the covenant? 
and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe? Safe for what? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now here's the reference to history. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. Look what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. You see, Jeremiah's prophecy uh, is rooted in the covenant like Amos's was. They're breaking the laws and God is just going to do what the covenant promised God would do. But on top of that, Jeremiah calls them to look at the history of their God. He says, you're breaking the same laws that Israel broke. Don't you think that God will punish you in the same way that God punished Israel? And this is one of the vital ways that God speaks through the prophets is by reminding God's people of the consistency of God's character. Prophets study the history of God's constant and unchanging character to recognize how God will respond to God's people today. This is why even today, testimony of the faithfulness of God matters for us in God's church because it reminds us that our God is a reliable God, a faithful God who keeps God's promises. And these two rhythms, the rhythm of the covenant with both its blessings and its curses, and the rhythm of the history of God's faithful character disciplining God's people, these two rhythms are the foundation of biblical prophecy. And it's on top of this foundation that we add a third element. Now to see how that third element fits in with the other two, we need to hear the story of one more prophet. This is the tale of the prophet Jane. This is the story of how Jane was discovered as a prophet. One day, she was in the school office talking to a secretary. While she was talking, the principal walked out. Jane, are you going out into the cafeteria? If you wanted me to, I could. Good. I want you to go out into the cafeteria and tell them that I am coming out there. And if they are playing with fidget spinners, they will be punished severely. During the first lunch, so many kids were playing with fidget spinners that I expelled all but a small fraction. Could you go warn the second lunch kids for me? Okay. So Jane went to the cafeteria. There she found that many were playing with fidget spinners. She got up on a chair and stood before them, right under the sign that said, no fidget spinning allowed. After she had gotten the students' attention, she began to speak. Fellow students, hear the word of our principal. I am coming, says the principal. I am coming soon, and when I come, I will punish all those who are playing with fidget spinning. Great and mighty is my arm, greater than the arm of a hundred fidget spinners. Fred, 
The meanest and toughest fidget spinnerer replied, I have been here fidget spinning for 20 minutes. Where has the principal been? Who are you to tell us what the principal wants? Maybe he is really into fidget spinning. As it is written on the sign, so has the principal told it to me. I will punish severely all those who fidget spin. It will be unto you as it was to the first lunch fidget spinnerers. Many were eating lunch while the, playing with the fidget spinners. Where are they now? They are expelled and out of the principal's sight. So it will be with you. Thus saith the principal. Soon, of course, the principal arrived, and it happened just like Janie said it would. Thereafter, she was known as a prophet and was honored throughout the school. All right, finally, a real prophet. She had a specific future prediction based off a conversation with the principal. And, of course, we do have prophecies like that in the Old Testament. Uh, prophets who have a specific word about the future that they receive directly uh, from God, maybe in a vision or God speaks to them. But notice, in our story, the prophecy she had from the principal was rooted in the public covenant. There was a sign on the wall, no fidget spinning. And it was rooted in the history of the principal's actions. She could tell them what the principal did to the first lunch fidget spinners. And the same thing is true of biblical prophets. Even when they brought a specific prediction, it wasn't a random disconnected oracle, like they fell into a trance and all of a sudden stumbled upon some new truth from God. It was always connected to the covenant, the public covenant, and the public consequences of breaking the covenant. And it was connected to the reliability of God's character as a just and merciful God. Here's a pretty clear example uh, from Isaiah chapter 8. My wife conceived and gave birth to a son. Uh, just to be clear, that's Isaiah's wife, not my wife. Okay, great. My wife conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Because before the boy knows how to even say Papa or Mama, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now that's a specific prediction, much more specific than the other two oracles we read from Amos and Jeremiah. He goes on, The Lord spoke to me again, Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, that was a place of worship to God, it means they've rejected God, and instead, they celebrate Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Those are two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Syria. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. That's a metaphor for the nation of Assyria. The king of Assyria, with all his pomp, will overflow its channels, run over its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Isaiah, like Jane, is making a very specific prophecy. Because God's people have not trusted God and instead trusted in the power of these two petty kings, Assyria will attack. They will conquer everything. They will destroy Israel and they will destroy Syria and they will sweep in even into Judah right up to its neck. They'll conquer everything but Jerusalem 
itself. And all of this is going to happen in a very specific window of time before Isaiah's newborn son knows how to say mama and daddy. And of course, all of it does happen, just as Isaiah predicts. Now this prophecy, interestingly, sits in between the other two we read. It's a specific prophecy that fulfills what Amos generically prophesied. He was in Israel saying, if you all don't shape up, God's going to destroy you. And Isaiah is now telling us exactly how it's going to happen. It also sits before what Jeremiah will prophesy. Remember, Jeremiah said, remember what happened to Shiloh, which Isaiah is talking about here. Don't you think the same thing could happen to us? So this prophecy kind of sits in between those two. And that reminds us that this very specific prophecy of Isaiah isn't sort of coming out of the blue. It's not some random oracle about the future. But it's right in line with what the whole legacy of prophets have been saying about the covenant of God and the character of God. This prophecy is part of one long, continuous, clear word from God, rooted all the way back in those texts we read from Deuteronomy 11 and Leviticus chapter 26 and lots of other places that we could have read, and then repeated again and again, first in general terms by other prophets who said, hey, if you don't shape up, God's going to destroy us. Not because they had a vision, but because they'd read the covenant. And then now... Here in Isaiah, who does have a clear word about the future, that consistent message gains prophetic clarity about the specific events that will be unfolding. Let's summarize just a little bit. Here's what we know about biblical prophecy. The prophecy of God is not some random, disconnected oracle about the future that's designed to sort of move the plot forward like a fantasy novel. It is not a cryptic and unexplained puzzle like the Delphic Oracle in Greek mythology. It's also not a fortune cookie that's so generic in its application that it could mean anything. And no matter what you read, you're like, yeah, that's sort of true about me. No, biblical prophecy is, number one, an expression of God's covenant applied to the present moment. Number two... It's a reminder of God's character about how God has always worked throughout history. And it's designed to call people to faithfulness in the present moment. That's what's so interesting about all those prophecies we read. They're all about the reminder to be faithful in the present. They may mention the future, but they're about our faithfulness in the present moment. So, If this is how biblical prophecy works, rooted in the covenant and character of God, calling us to faithfulness in the present moment, here are a few things this helps us with. Number one, it protects us from false prophets today. When a preacher stands up and says, I had a vision from God or I was praying to God and God told me I need a private airplane and you people need to pay for it. No. That is not how biblical prophecy works. That's how Yoda works, maybe, but that is not how biblical prophets work. Because biblical prophets are rooted in the covenant and character of God. Unless you see in the covenant, in God's word, where it says that preachers need to be fabulously wealthy or something like that. Well, no, that's not how biblical prophecy works. 
Or if a televangelist gets on television and says, I heard the voice of God and all of you need to send me your life savings, cash in your 401k so that I can get rich and live my lavish lifestyle. Again, no, that is not how biblical prophecy works. That is not rooted in God's covenant. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It's not rooted in God's character. God's character doesn't want some people to be rich while others go hungry because they've given away their life savings. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. And prophecy that's not rooted in the character and covenant of God is false prophecy. Or, or if a radio Bible preacher says, Jesus is going to return on May 12th and I just know it. Nope, 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 nope. That is not how prophecy works in the Bible. It might be how it works in Harry Potter or your favorite fantasy movie, but biblical prophecy is always consistent with the priorities and teaching of God's word and God's character. So that's the first thing. Knowing how true prophecy works protects us from false prophets. And we still live in a world with plenty of false prophets that are trying to deceive Christians. The second thing is, knowing how biblical prophecy works lets us know that prophecy is still needed. In our world today, we still need prophets. Whenever we forget about the poor or the oppressed, we need prophets to confront the church and call us back to God's desires. Whenever we as members of the church are tempted to worship the false idols of our age, to give anything other than God allegiance before God, to make anything other than God more important than God. Well, we need prophets to remind us that that's idolatry and to live an idolatrous life is to seek God's judgment. We are never without a word from the Lord. We don't have to sit around and wait for a vision like Isaiah had. We already have God's word and God's covenant. We have God's character revealed in Jesus Christ. We don't need to wait for a prophetic word. We have a prophetic word already here for us in God's covenant and in God's character as revealed in Jesus Christ. When I say the church still needs prophets, I don't mean we need people who can predict the future. Okay, Jesus said don't bother trying to predict the future. We need people who can speak the truth about God's will and God's covenant and God's character and help us see how that truth applies to our present moment. The third thing that understanding how true prophecy does, for me at least, is it reminds me to stay humble. As God's people, we must humble ourselves to hear the prophetic voices around us. Voices that call us to repent, to return, to trust in the way of Christ, even when we long to go a different way, to put our hope in the mercy of God, even when we long to prove our own righteousness. We need to humble ourselves to the prophetic voices around us. Don't make them the same mistake people did in Amos' day and Jeremiah's day and Isaiah's day of ignoring the prophets who called them back to the covenant and character of God. Instead, we need to listen with soft hearts, trusting that we too need prophets in our life to call us back to God's way. And over the next three weeks, uh, that's exactly what we believe is going to happen. Uh, we're going to return to the prophets, to the heralds of God's covenant. We're going to allow them to speak God's word into their day, and allow them to continue to speak God's word into our day. 
to hear the prophetic word that calls us as God's people back to God's way and to God's character revealed in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for the wisdom and work of the prophets. Brave enough to speak out in a dark age the truth of your word, the commands of your covenants. And I ask God that you would make us humble enough to hear the message that they still have for us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.